Hello, hello, this is... Oh, what is this? What is this show that I'm doing? It's too long, don't listen, isn't it? It's a review episode of the Book of Boba Fett. Chapter 7, In the Name of Honour, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Written by John Favreau, my name is Sean Peterbudge. And as I've done for the previous six episodes, let's get into this episode. So, I sort of got myself into a bit of a rhythm, hadn't I, recording these episodes, particularly after the first one, I think I did that on a Friday, but... All the other ones, the other five, I'd sort of done the night of. Um, But in light of the season finale, which is probably the series finale, to be fair, of the book of Boba Fett, I found myself needing a bit more time to think about it and kind of make sense of my thoughts. We'll go into those very shortly. Just uh, as for the plot from episode seven, it's the morning after the night before, and Boba, Fennec Shand, and Mando convene in the ruins of the Sanctuary, Mos Espa's foremost entertainment venue, a kind of Ciro's, or maybe a Coco Bongo club for scum and villainy. It's an altogether classier establishment, I'm sure you'll agree. After all, they do have Max Rebo as a member of the house band. Uh, as you may recall, the Pike sent a message that they were coming, and no one in Mos Espa was safe if they stood in either their way or alongside Boba Fett when they blew the joint up last week. Mando tells Fett as he arrives in the ruins that Marshal Cobb Vanth has promised the people of Freetown will fight shoulder to shoulder with him and his allies to rid the region of spice, a space drug tearing families and societies apart, as drugs have a tendency to do. Next season, I'm sure it will be targeting sports betting ads on pod racing teams, maybe with pokey venues uh, financing them. Conveniently for the narrative, but inconveniently for Bobber and his team, the folk of Freetown are on their way and will arrive as soon as they can. That means they're not there to begin with when the fight's going to start. There's really strong five minutes away when I'm not even in the shower vibes about it, to be brutally honest. So with the Pikes actually on their way, they make the decision to stand and fight where they are, a venue with little strategic benefit, place at the end of a one-way thoroughfare with tall buildings perfect for snipers all around it and seemingly no way in or out. It's fair enough. I mean, Jabba's Palace only has a heavily fortified door and can't easily be breached and has a big frickin' crow's nest-type balcony at the top with 360-degree views of the fucking vista. Whatever. Be brave. Just don't be dumb. But in fairness, the rationale is to stay and fight in the ruins of the sanctuary because it sends a strong message to the people of Mos Espa that they're with them and have their backs. Yeah, okay. All right. That's... Yeah, sure. I can kind of get behind that. So once they've picked their Alamo, it's time for the shooting to start. Elsewhere, an X-Wing flies into town with some precious cargo. Grogu, of course, has seemingly made his choice to remain or have his reunion with Mando. Uh, After all, Luke did remark that his training was coming back to him last week, saying that he was remembering things rather than being taught them. He's wearing his little Beskar shirt, maybe stressing to us that he's chosen the life of the Mandalorian, or at least the Mandalorian's friendship. Maybe he's just cosplaying as Bennett as com- uh, Bennett from Commando, who knows. But the first threat to arrive at the Sanctuary is, of course, the villainous spectre of Cad Bane, who reacquaints himself and exchanges pleasantries with Fett, saying that so long as the spice flows through the town and the planet, they can avoid a conflict. This obviously doesn't wash with Bobber, who holds his ground both figuratively and literally. He's picked his heel, he's going to die on it. It is here, hoping to coax Boba Fett into conflict, that Bane tells him it was actually the Pikes who killed his Tuscan friends, not that biker gang, something that only steals Boba's resolve to reject any compromise. After this, the families of Mos Espa double-cross Fett, turning on his allies and splintering their defences such as they are. They've gone into business with the Pikes, a contravention of their promises to remain neutral in the conflict that dirty little scamps. If you can't trust a criminal enterprise ruled entirely on suspicion and self-interest, who can you trust? Bobber and Mando give as good as they get, channeling a little bit of Iron Man and War Machine, or maybe Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, before the Pikes numbers get a bit too much. Just as things seem at their most hopeless, boom, 
about a dozen Freetownians rock up as reinforcements. It's hardly Gandalf riding into Helm's Deep with the Rohirrim, but it is effective and does help. The battle ultimately spills onto the streets of Mos Espa. Boba rides a Rancor, Grogu helps out a little bit, and Boba Fett and Cad Bane have their shootout on Main Street. It's quite a happening. At the end of the day, all the loose ends are tied up when they defeat the bad guys, Fennec Shan takes out the pikes in Mos Esley and the mare hiding alongside him, and Boba ultimately and finally becomes the daimyo of Mos Espa. So yeah, that's the plot, such as it is. There's a bit going on there, a little bit of stuff left out, I just tried to do the kind of broader strokes. Now, as I kind of mentioned off the top, I'd come into a bit of a rhythm of doing these the night of the episode, and in the aftermath of this one, I found myself needing a bit of time to kind of decompress and to really think about it and marinate in it, because I want to be glass half full when I talk about these sorts of things, because it's pretty easy to be dismissive and snarky and negative, and sometimes it's fun. But I try as best as I can to see the good over the bad and enjoy things, ultimately for what they are. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, if, if people remember. I said that a lot of people these days seem to get annoyed or disenfranchised when things that they're passionate about play out in such a way that surprises them and they kind of become angered or disappointed about what the show wasn't rather than what the show was. So if you allow me to be a bit hypocritical, I feel like the closing chapter of the book of Boba Fett leaves an unmistakable pang of, hold on, is that it? Something I'm sure that most of us noticed the longer the season went. It felt like it lost more and more steam before finally falling over the finish line with an almighty meh, meh. Well, is that it? That's it, isn't it? Oh, okay. Hmm. You know, I was left to wonder, was it my fault for expecting something else? You know, should I just see the good and enjoy what we got to see when some of it was really, really great? Should I just be happy with that? Or should I be frustrated that the show that it looked like they were making was sort of dispensed with about halfway through and, and didn't really end in any way that I think is satisfactory to anyone, to be honest. Now, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Expectations and reality. And in this particular show, I think we've got one of the strangest seasons of television I can recall. It's equal parts intriguing, satisfying at times, and then ultimately ends up being just mystifying as to how and why it was allowed to go the way it did. And sadly... It feels like the sum total of what we got is, in the end, less than the parts. But why is that? How is that? Was it too much ambition? You know, did the story they were trying to tell get a bit too big for them? Maybe. Not enough discipline. They strayed from the narrative path they were treading. You know, they got distracted by other things. Yeah, probably. It's a combination of both. You know, come a season finale, you should reasonably expect a few things. A satisfying conclusion to the primary and secondary narratives. Perhaps a setup for what's to come next? Some character growth in the form of an arc resolving itself? And crucially, an appropriate level of scale. Whether that's via emotional stakes or conflict itself. If the show has been teasing a looming threat, when that threat arrives, it needs to be appropriately scaled to the character's responses thus far and the audience's interpretation of that. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more later on. So... You know, how do things resolve themselves come the closing credits? Not well. I'd spoken a while back about knowing what those middle episodes would mean come season's end and waiting for the story to kind of fully uncoil itself and play out before we've got a good sense of where everything sits. You know, you have to see the whole picture before really, truly appreciating all the finer details, you know. You know and in the end, it was the finer details that were the highlight rather than the bigger picture. Those little moments... That tickled us, and we all went, geez, that's great, that's good to see. They didn't ultimately end up serving the overall story, the overall season arc, but they were good while we were enjoying them. But let's take a step back and go, oh, geez, they don't really fit this puzzle, do they? Mm. You know, Bobber ends up writing a rancor, yeah, okay. The Pikes end up coming to town, oh, kind of. You know, ultimately, the tease, it felt like something big was coming that didn't end up turning up and it felt like like Kira obviously was something we spoke about last week and it had been spoken about a little bit in weeks gone by and you kind of thought yeah, that would have made more sense in the end but I don't know it didn't end up happening and it kind of ended up just like a balloon just you know flying away mm. 
don't know. Disappointing. Disappointing, wasn't it? Just find myself thinking about it now. I've got all these notes and I'm just like, there's some good stuff. There is. But just with everything that's good, I just find myself going, but, you know, this was great, but. And it's a shame. So we'll do the chicken salads, as we're known to do as the pros to get us kicked off. A lot of it centres around Cad Bane, to be honest. I really liked when we first see Cad Bane, not even just last week, but obviously this week as well. There's a really cool kind of interesting um, physicality to him, which I think they realised really, really well. A cockiness, a swagger. But he's like he's like walking death. And it actually reminded me a little bit, subconsciously, I don't know, I'm, I'm almost certain this wouldn't have been in the back of their minds when they were making the show. But there was something very kind of Undertaker about him, if you know your wrestling and the idea of the, the character that Mark Calloway, arguably the owner of the greatest gimmick you know, in the history of the, the business, but particularly in his early days, when he was very slow, very methodical, and he walks around the ring and he's stalking, he doesn't talk, there's no emotion, and it's this really foreboding, really nasty presence where through very little physicality, he tells you a lot about himself. And I thought that was a really cool part of Cad Bane's live-action persona. They kind of really stripped him back in that way. And he came across as a fearsome, no-nonsense, you know, not-to-be-fucked-with kind of guy, um, which was great. But I did find myself, when it was all said and done, thinking, did they just... They introduced him too late, didn't they? Great introduction... He comes in and he sends a message to Cobb Vanth and he, you know, he wounds him and he kills the deputy. And he kind of went, geez, that's, that's badass. Yeah, this guy's finally turned up and he means business. This is great. But then given the way that the rest of the threats play out, that is, he turned up too late. You know, he's an interesting, really different threat because he is just one man. But he's the ultimate professional. He's the best in the business at what he does. He's a little bit like Thrawn in Rebels where he'll play his enemies at a game they all know so well, but he'll just play it better than they do. He and Bobber and Fennec Shand and you know, Chrysant and all these guys, they're from the same cloth, but he's just the best of them. And they're going to all need to work together, even Mando to an extent, but they're all going to have to work together to best this guy because he's just, he's just that good. And I just thought... Why introduce him a lot earlier as the guys the Pikes have maybe hired to have a hit on Bobber? You know, he should have been introduced as their kind of their attack dog, but, you know, on, on a retainer, not, not just a lackey, but they've paid him. Maybe end the first episode with the Pikes having come to the realisation, don't try to obscure who they are and then double bluff us with this weird threat that it's the, the Huts, but it's not, but it's these guys, but it's not. Just have the Pikes go... Look, ultimately, we don't want war. As the the hut said, we don't want war. War is bad for business. It's costly. It's unnecessary. You know, if we can avoid it, all that happens, even if we win, we're going to lose lots of men. We don't want to do that. We'll just hire one guy to go and take Boba Fett out. And then what ends up happening throughout the course of the season is a bit of a game of cat and mouse. Um, you know, these, these, these skirmishes escalate with a pair of them just barely escaping time and time again. Um, think, in a way, think like that wonderful sort of cat and mouse game in No Country for Old Men between Llewellyn uh, and Anton Chigurh, and particularly the scene where they kind of have it out in the hotel, and just that that, that game of bo- both of them sort of know what's happening, both of them are prepared to kill the other if they get the shot. But it's, it's, it's sort of chess, isn't it? It's, I've got to protect myself whilst potentially giving myself the opportunity to take that shot when it comes up. So that would have been cool. And even, uh, like, in Bruges had that a little bit, in a, in a, in a kind of way, with, um, with uh, Colin Farrell and Ray Fine's character. Again, it was in a hotel. And they're kind of having it out with one another a bit. But I think that would have been a fun dynamic to play on. Like, the, the, the show already pays homage to so many other movies and takes so many other set pieces and moments from other movies. That's a, that, Those two are awesome, particularly the, the No Country for Old Men angle, where Fett's not so much on the run like Llewellyn was sort of trying to get away a little bit, but they're just... They're playing this game like they're having a bit of a, 
a fight with one another at you know a couple of miles and they're passing each other in the night and if they are escaping it's by the skin of their teeth and they're setting traps for one another and then ultimately it it culminates in the shootout on Main Street where finally they come legitimately face-to-face with one another, no one else between them. I think that would have been a, an interesting way to set it up. Um, having said that, you know, continuing on with the chicken salads, their showdown came in two parts, but, you know, in part one where they first came face-to-face with one another was really cool. You could tell they have a history. Um, they, they go put that across really, really well. You know, it was the old head, you know, Cad Bain, who obviously had something to do with Boba when he was younger, was... I'm not sure if this is canon, but he was trained, I think, by Django Fett, or certainly had something to do with Django Fett in his younger days. Um, I like the reveal where Cad Bane just throws it out there that the Pikes, we obviously knew this, that the Pikes killed the Tuscans, or certainly in league with the bikers killed the Tuscans. And I kind of thought it was cool because it was an interesting twist for him to give that info up so readily for a couple of reasons. A, to kind of try to start a conflict with him, to needle him, you know, to, to classic Star Wars trope when you're having a fight with somebody, play on their emotions and try to get them angry. And because if it tips him over the edge, if it tips Bobba over the edge, it actually doesn't matter that Bobba knows the truth because he'll be dead. Cad Bane's philosophy is, I'm going to needle you, I'm going to annoy you, I'm going to tell you something that makes you angry, and it's not going to get back to the bosses that I, or the pikes that I double-crossed them or I sold them out because I'm going to kill you. So no one's going to tell them that. So I thought that was sort of an, an added an interesting layer of nastiness, sort of interesting psychological war going on, which was cool. Um, and it was sort of Fennec Shan again playing the even-handed. She came in and was preaching calm and resolve. That was Bane was was trying to goad him into having a fight. The thing that was missing there was maybe a, an exchange, really, between or something between Fennec Shand and Cad Bane, because they've obviously got a history in canon given uh, the events of the Bad Batch. I thought that was a bit weird that they didn't really converse or they didn't really have anything to say to one another. That was, you know, felt like a bit of a missed opportunity. And then in the, the second showdown, the sort of final showdown, where they have the shootout and Boba gets the better of him with the, the Jaffy stick. I really like that they gave Cad Bane some respect. He's he's the real deal. He's not sort of what they did to Bobber in the, the movies. This guy's a really um, super capable, competent, dangerous you know bounty hunter at the top of his game. He's, as I said earlier, one of the best in the business. So I like that they gave him that respect, that he had that swagger, that cockiness, and was, um, was just really accomplished, which was cool. Um, the way he gets rid of the Rancor pretty quickly without much fuss was good. You know, he obviously outdraws Bobber, which is which is good. That's sort of his stock and trade, being the quickest draw. He monologued. It's never good. You never monologue. It's, it's giving your enemy more time than they need. They just kill them. But he, a little bit cockiness, gets the better of him. Uh, nice callback that it was Bobber's payoff. Uh, I should say that it was Bobber's Tuscan training with the Jaffy stick that uh, got him the the win, got him you know the upper hand in the conflict and the battle again. That was cool. And then ultimately, surely they haven't killed him off. Surely they haven't killed Cad Bane off. He's too strong and dangerous a character. And the beauty of him has always been his craftiness and, you know, he escapes and he you know, lives to fight another day. That That's that kind of... He's not a chicken shit heel in the wrestling business game, but he, he always ends up, even if he's kind of beaten or if he hasn't got the result he wants, he always ends up scampering away and he'll come back and, and be a fly in the ointment you know, somewhere down the line. And that was sort of always the cool part of his character, and they never cheapened his character by doing that. They always found really nice ways to kind of have him live to fight another day. Um, oh, still, a few people made the point here. Nice that you know, it was Bobber, the original clone, the one who dealt the potentially fatal blow to the guy that who throughout the Clone Wars you know, took out his fair share of clones, did his fair share of damage. Um, the one thing that has been spoken about uh, in the aftermath is obviously uh, Cad Bane in the in all other sort of canon has been shown to have this Toto 360 droid that sort of follows him and and whatnot, a bit like a Dobby kind of thing to be honest in Harry Potter. But there was a weird, weird kind of some weird sort of sound mixing that suggests that maybe obviously that droid might come along and help him out and. Maybe Cad Bane's got a back to tank and we'll 
he'll survive and, and come back at some point. I think he needs to. I think he's too good of a character just to be this one and done. He was at the tail end of one episode and in half of this episode. It feels like he he could be so much more of a presence and so much more of a, uh, you know, a problem for whether it be Mando or the others to deal with as the show showers, you know, progress and move on. Um, and then ultimately, kind of as I alluded to, I just thought, I just reckon they got it wrong. I just reckon they got the balance wrong. He probably should have been the bad guy all along and then you have the big, to, to put the you know full stop on things, you have the big showdown. You could probably kill him off, to be honest, if he was the show's bad guy from more or less episode two kind of thing. But if he's the threat throughout... And then Bob finally bests him in the street. You know, as, as I said, classic Western, a shootout on Main Street in front of the saloon, which they very much teased, you know, in, in look and feel. Um, just a winner-take-all, their best versus our best type thing might have even been interesting. This idea that two well-travelled, credentialed, experienced bounty hunters come face-to-face for one last time, winner-take-all, the idea being that We'll put our best against your best. He tells the Pikes, your men don't need to die. Um, for him, it's a matter of honour. You know, referring maybe to the episode title. He'll back himself in to, to outdraw him, to kill him, and the rest of his followers and allies will have the requisite honour to fall into line. And you know, and on the flip side, Boba thinks the same. We don't have to. We don't have to put the people of Mos Espa. We don't have to put the people of Freetown. We don't have to put. Fennec Shand and Chrysanthemum and all these guys at risk. I'll finish this. This is I've taken responsibility. I'll finish this. And I just thought, you know, you'd have this cool thing where even Cad Bane could, all cocky, you know, he could be saying that all these people don't have to die. Just one of us has to die. This conflict ends with one of our deaths. We don't have to destroy the city. We don't have to kill hundreds or thousands of people. Just one of us has to die and it's over. You know, and then you kind of had the flip side of that was where was he... I don't think it would have been cool for him to have a moment with Fennec Shand as well at some point throughout the season. They had that moment in the Bad Batch, which I referred to a bit earlier, and I found myself wondering, that's obviously why they wrote her out of Moss Esper for the back part of the... You know, she obviously goes off to Moss Eisley to tidy up those loose ends. That probably should have been Boba Fett because he'd gone and seen them earlier in the season, but it felt like they realised... The Phoenix Shan's in Moss Esper. She's going to come across Cad Bane. They had a fine in Bad Batch. So we're probably going to refer to that. But that's cool. Do that. Have them there. Have them all there. And then have the people in Moss Eisley, the Pikes in Moss Eisley, obviously be waiting for word back from Cad Bane or waiting for word back for their people that how their fight's gone, how the conflict's gone. Are they all dead? And then it's Bobber who rolls in to tell them no. So, again, did they get it wrong? It felt like that. Um, even if Phoenix Shan and Cad Bane, you know, long time don't see. No see, like, long time no see. You know, we fought each other, what was it, 20-odd years ago? 25 years ago? I don't know, missed opportunity. Uh, riding the Rancor, obviously referred to earlier in the season. It felt like we'd all forgotten about that until we remembered it. Um, bit of fun, a little bit of Toho, monster movie vibes. You know, people will immediately go to King Kong, which the... When the Rancor gets on the loose, that's clearly what they're paying homage to. But at least when he turns up and he starts fighting and roaming through the city, massive Godzilla, you know, classic Toho vibes about that. Even with the scale, you know, Mos Espa's, you know, two-story buildings at the most. So you kind of had the man in the suit sort of thing going on, which the Rancor was sort of sort of going to be. Obviously, he was stop motion, but it had that kind of feel about him. Classic monster movie, which was cool. Um... I think, like, just the visual, like, the visual was cool of him riding into town on this big beast, you know. Uh, it was a little bit Robocop as, as well. I found myself laughing that, you know, he's brought this giant beast in the city and they're fighting those kind of, like, spider droid things, the droid to car kind of things. Um, but, but like Robocop, yeah, like, we've saved the city, but we've also caused a huge amount of destruction in doing so. And we've sort of leaves us wondering or leaves us with the question... Was it really worth it? Yeah, yeah, we've saved the city and we've rid the city of this criminal enterprise. We've also destroyed the city. <laughs> so it's all in smouldering, firing ruins. But it's safe. Um, like I said, King Kong at the end was a bit of fun. 
The question I've seen on Twitter, actually, which was doing the rounds, which was spot on for me, was... Why? So he goes back to the palace to get the rancor. And when he leaves to go, you're like, yeah, he's getting the rancor, because we set that up a couple episodes ago. Why wouldn't he get the Slave 1? That's got heavy artillery on it. Why wouldn't he go back and get his ship and then, like, I don't know, fire on those fire on those uh, droid creatures with the shields from the Slave 1? Once again, be brave, but don't be dumb. Because it just makes you look silly. And it's one of those where you go, yeah, it's cool spectacle, but it kind of doesn't make sense, though, does it? Mm. Uh, the other thing that was cool, which I quite liked, just a little narrative thread going out throughout the episode, just about honour, in the name of honour, obviously being the title of the episode. Um, everyone who acts with honour, and this is a, a nice little storytelling trope, it's nothing It's nothing incredible, but it's, it's when it's nicely done, it's, it's good. All those who conducted themselves with honour survive. That's their reward, in a way, that in, within the story. So obviously Boba says that he can't abandon Mos Espa. These people rely on me. You know, even convincing one of the mods, you know, convincing him to stay and fight in the sanctuary rather than the safety of the palace. You know, what that says to the locals, etc. They have honour. You know, Mando, the same thing. He's a loyal ally. He's prepared to die if he needs to because he's made a promise to fight alongside him. Fennec Shand, she stays with him. I obviously said earlier in the year, uh, season, sorry, I wonder if she'll go rogue and turn her back on him. But she didn't. She, she stuck true to her word. Um, and she obviously survives the conflict. And then you cast, even you know, Chris Anton and, and, and the others, but you cast that against, you know, even even the mayor or the mayor's aide, you know, in their kind of you know, snivelling, grovelling weasels, you know, Cad Bane, the Pikes, the other families of Mos Espa, every party in the story who conducts themselves without any honour or without any code ends up on the wrong side of the fight. So that was a cool little kind of morality tale that flowed through the episode and one of the things out of this episode that came to a satisfying conclusion. Um, Mando and Fett's shootout, I mentioned earlier, a little bit Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, even a little bit Rocketeer-like, you know, when the two of them were flying around with their jetpacks, even if it wasn't entirely deliberate, I can't help but notice it. Um, There's some really cool kind of side-by-side videos um, that put the Rocketeer running alongside Iron Man, the first one, and, and you kind of look at it going, yeah, there's a bit in that, isn't that? There's a bit in this that Favreau likes that or is somewhat influenced by it. Um, and the Rocketeer is a great, fun film, a really cool sort of throwback movie that time has forgotten in a lot of ways. So it's fun to kind of see little bits and pieces throughout Mando. There was a particular sequence at the back end of season one, which was very Rocketeer-like. Um, and here it's not so overt, but, you know, they get the jetpacks out and they're flying around. I can't help but hark back to them and think about them. Um, and like I said, even even a bit Iron man at times, again, with the Favreau link from Iron Man 1 when he escapes the cave in the Mark 1 and he's being fired upon by the um, you know, Ten Rings sort of blokes um, and he's fighting and he goes down on one knee when he's fighting an Iron Man 2 alongside War Machine, a bit like that as well, but... Um, that was good fun. It was a cool sequence and it was good to watch. Uh, the two of them kind of going back to back and uh, taking out the pikes. Um, and then Grogu obviously had some cool moments. Um, when he hugged Mando and jumped up, that'll melt hearts all around the world. Um, when he puts the Rancor to sleep and then kind of nuzzles in next to him again. Baby Yoda got to do cute shit. That's what the audience want. Um, but more importantly than that, as the show's evolved, it actually really liked the way his, his puppet has become... It's very tactile, and it's it's very Yoda-like in that way. There's a suspension of disbelief with cinema that sort of more sophisticated visual effects have kind of blurred the line. But when it's an actual puppet, and you can see it's a puppet, like, we, we know it is. We know it's not a real thing. And we're prepared to cut them some slack, you know, to kind of go, yeah, yeah we get it. We, we treat it as real for the narrative for the show which is the courtesy that we give the show, which is good. But whilst we accept some certain limitations that allow it to act and interact within the real world, I don't know, there's this cool kind of the way they've realised it is really kind of fun. It's a big, it's a fun throwback to Henson and Yoda and the, the Muppets type stuff and all those great kind of big practical puppets. So this is obviously that on a smaller scale, 
but it's always fun to see those old ways you know be retained in really mainstream you know um, properties which is cool uh, the chicken shits now I thought there was a few elements here this is in a couple parts almost the same point um, but the storyline pivot I thought was kind of a bit I just don't know if it quite worked for me this idea that Cadbane says, let the uh, spice flow through Moss Espa and all this can be avoided. It kind of felt as though, in the end, they don't even want control of the region. They'll let, like, in the end, it felt like they'll let Boba be the boss or they'll let the families, you know, run their territories and be the boss. Just let us sell our drugs. We're not actually interested in taking over. We're not interested in muscling back in and taking the territory from you. We just want to sell our drugs. It just—it felt like a little bit of a course correction, that like they weren't interested in actually coming in and eradicating all the other families, or even eradicating Boba. They weren't interested in ruling with an iron fist. Like they still presented a moral conundrum, but it felt like it was one that was introduced or clarified a bit late in the piece. I don't know if that's me just missing the point entirely, but I kind of thought, well, they're coming in and they actually want to—they want to take over for good. They want to come in and replace Jabba the Hutt and be the big crime boss. When you were like, no, nah, they, they actually don't really give a shit. They they want to have their little little office in Moss Eisley and just be allowed to sell drugs in the city. Which, again, that's the stuff bad guys do. But it wasn't so egregiously threatening that... Well, how I, how I imagined it, which is weird. Which f- flows into this next point, that the threat that the Pikes presented, in the end, it felt like they weren't really worth the build-up. Maybe, again, I'm misreading things. Like... I thought that there were like reinforcements or soldiers or warriors or, you know, the muscle coming from off-world, but it was ultimately just those blokes in Moss Eisley rolled into town. And they were kind of cowardly. They were sort of dispensed off relatively easily. It was a, you know, a ragtag crew of um, a couple of locals got the better of them in one skirmish. And there was about 30 of them and a couple of those big walker droids. I thought, is this sort of it? Oh, again, I don't know what I was expecting. That's maybe where... I'm going to talk about this later, but you, you need scale. You need to protect the scale. And that's why threatening this big thing, you know, this big kind of blow-off that, oh, we're going to come to town with hundreds and thousands and we're going to be an army. You won't be able to survive that. The, the numbers will just be too great. Alamo style, we're just going to throw bodies at you. You will not be able to survive the night. Supplementing that with the idea that Cad Bane would go to him and say, we can avoid this. We can avoid the war. We can avoid all this death and destruction if just you and me have it out in the street. You protect the limitations of your budget and the limitations of the television, you know, the scale, by just saying it's ultimately just one-on-one. Because my... I don't know how many people I was expecting. I was expecting more than 30 pikes to turn up and try to take over the city. In the end, it kind of felt like, oh, they're not really that serious, are they? Because they've only sent like a couple of dozen guys. Hmm. Ultimately, I thought some of the flight uh, fight choreography wasn't all that great. Um, you know, the attack on the Gamorians and Cristanton were a little bit stilted. Um, it just felt a, a bit jumpy and a bit sort of clunky, and it just didn't quite work maybe how I would have liked it to. Um, I don't know if that's just me, and there, there are only little small segments of these episodes, but it was kind of a bit of a throwback to maybe the first episode, I think, when they they go to... Um, they go to the sanctuary or they go to see uh, Mokshayis for the first time and they kind of get set upon by those those bounty hunter guys in the street. And again, the, just the choreography in that sequence, like the ones we saw in episode 7, was just a bit... just a bit... Ugh, just not very slick. You know, very, very boring, very stale. And again, we, we, get, the, we get the thrust of what these sequences are telling us. Um... But for something this big with this many resources, it was just a bit underwhelming that some of those, um, some of those, that choreography was just a bit flat. Um, you know, I mentioned that the last stand in the sanctuary, kind of off the top, and my issue with that so much was I don't know if they earned the desperate situation that they were trying to sell us. You think back, Mando had that where they were they were in the it's like a bar or um, was it the was it the client's joint? Just trying to remember where they were, but in in towards the end of the se- season one of the Mando, and there's like Grief Cargo was there, uh, the droid, Mando, Baby Yoda, and um, Gina Carano, Cara Cara Dune, that they were all there, and you sort of thought there's only three or four of you here, capable, you know, capable 
to fight your way out of a corner potentially, but a, like a like a garrison turned up, like an imperial garrison with Moff Gideon. And there was a sense of oh they're in they're a, they are in strife. There's no way out here. They're gonna you know they end up cutting a hole in the in the uh, the vent there to get out. But as an example, just with this sanctuary one, I never really thought thought like oh they're actually hemmed in and the situation's really dire and there's no way out. And, you know, again, using the Helm's Deep thing as an example, they that was a story told brilliantly well where so long as the defence is held, they'll be okay. When they're breached, they retreat back inside and it's kind of like, no, nah, we're done. We've got to... There's no way out of this. And it was that sense of desperation. It was really compelling storytelling because we all accepted that. But with this one, I just didn't think that the threat was so over- overwhelming for the characters who were there. You know, if they kind of stuck together, you're kind of thinking, well, Mando, Fennec Shand, Boba Fett, even a Chrysanthemum wasn't there at that particular point in time. But you're like, these are all pretty fearsome kind of figures within this underworld. Surely they can take on a bunch of just hired pike goons. I don't know. Maybe I'm, again, I'm not sure. I don't know. But yeah, it just felt like that level of despair and desperation they were trying to sell us wasn't really marrying up with what was on the screen, you know. Um, another thing that I found a little bit frustrating was we got some interesting teasers, you know, early in the season of Bobber as a young boy on Camino, and maybe they were just never meant to be any more than a, you know, a, a tip of the hat or a nod to his wanting connection, wanting a tribe, wanting a family, and feeling like obviously ever since that time of his life, that's he's been without that. Maybe that's all it was ever meant to be, but it just felt like kind of fertile ground for them to explore. Um, Maybe it wouldn't have been important. Maybe it would have been nice to see. I'm not sure, but it, it just felt like they were giving us these flashbacks of him obviously having kind of waking dreams, you know, nightmares about this time in his life, which has obviously left him scarred and, and still to this day, you know, what, 20 or 30-odd years later is something that still affects him. It just, it just felt a bit strange that he was, yeah, just we did never really explore that. Or that didn't come to anything more than just those quick flashes and quick grabs. Uh, Cobb Vanth, no idea why he was written out of the climax. Maybe they couldn't get Timothy Oliphant, I'm not sure. No idea why, because there was nothing last week to suggest that he'd been mortally wounded. And to sort of drop it on us, oh, he's been killed, only to later show him in the back to tank, I think it worked fine as it was presented. We, I think we all recognised that Cad Bane shot him in the shoulder, like, deliberately. He could have killed him, but he chose not to because he wanted to send a message, but then he kills the deputy. And then that would ultimately be the, the inciting incident that resolved Vanth to rally the people of Freetown was that this guy means business, I need to help protect my people and the people of the broader community in the, you know, Tatooine. But, yeah, I just thought it was a weird beat to kind of go, these people turn up and tell us that he's died. But it was like... That wasn't the impression anyone got last week. He was shot in the shoulder. I sort of thought that was just weird. It felt like he was a missing character that he built up. And he's, or I think most people really like Cobb Vanth as a character to kind of have him just written out of the the finale there where he could have been a really interesting character. And, and all these guys have got a beef you know, with Cad Bane, which is, makes it again fun, is that I, I remember seeing this thing about Ocean's 13 and they were talking about um, you know Willie Bank, a character played by Al Pacino, and this idea that all of the actors wanted, like, an exchange with him. And they all got a scene with him. And that was their kind of moment in the film to have a scene opposite Al Pacino. And that was sort of the fun of it. Some of them got more than one. But in this, you kind of thought, well, Phoenix Shan's got beef with him. Boba Fett's got beef with him. Cobb Vance got beef with him. So you can kind of, if you stagger the story well, you can kind of stagger it in such a way that each of those three have a showdown with him, culminating with Boba having the showdown with him and finally getting him. But the other ones play their part, potentially. They've all got a score to settle with him. They've all had run-ins with him in the past. So, again, to not have him there, but then to tease him as no, he is alive, he's just in the back to tank. It was just strange. I didn't get it. Must have been a, a timing thing or, you know, they must have been able to get the actor because it made no sense for Cobb Vance to not be in the finale. Weird. And then lastly, the chicken shits, Robert Rodriguez. So, without wanting to bury the lead, I'm doing it at the 39 or three-quarter minute mark, 
they need to stop giving this guy episodes of these TV shows. Obviously, the rationale is that he has a tremendous amount of experience using green screen and shooting on sound stages and, and not being limited by that. You know, he'd, he'd obviously done the, the Spy Kids film to great, uh, great effect, famously Sin City. Um, he's made some great movies, don't get me wrong. But his episodes of Mando and the now Book of Boba Fett have just been ordinary. They've all been ordinary. And they all contain the same stupid spectacle at the expense of story or just really mind a stupid stuff. The action in it's largely shot poorly, again, which is something you'd think he would do well. And his episodes just have this strange kind of like cheapness to them. They feel like television in the worst way. When the whole point of a lot of these shows is that they don't feel like that. I've been speaking about that gap between what you get on a movie screen and what you get on a TV screen being shrink, or shrinking, I should say. But with the, the Rodriguez stuff, it, that's just not the case. They feel like television. And not particularly good television. You know, like he did that episode that, with Boba Fett in it from Mando Season 2 where he had this really boring shootout with stormtroopers in the kind of the canyon and it was just, it was bad. You know, it was just bad. And then even the finale of this one, it, you know, sections of it were just bad. Almost inexcusably so. So they've just they've got to stop giving this bloke episodes to direct because I've seen some people point the finger at the writing and don't get me wrong, it was a poorly constructed episode which was poorly constructed on the back of what they've been doing the last couple of weeks and all those things that they put on the back burner came home to roost in the worst possible way for them. But ultimately it, it just... It's not really an excuse for certain areas of the direction of the show to be bland. Yeah, the writing can be ordinary and the story can be somewhat uninspired, but you can still realise it in an interesting or compelling or energetic, dynamic way. And I just don't think he does. I just think he, he's he been given a couple cracks now and ultimately the proof is in the pudding. All of his episodes have been basically the same quality, which is a concern. Uh, now for odds and ends. I like that he was a lot of movie references this week, perhaps more so, felt like more so than other weeks. But I love that um, at the end of the episode when Fett's walking through the town and all the locals are bowing at him and in a way kind of offering him tributes. It was very Godfather-like. Um, you know, both Godfather, the first one and the second one, very, very similar to that when you know, you're walking through Little Italy and being given tribute. That was really cool. A nice little nod. Um, I love the establishing shots of Moss Esper. We've gotten a few of them in this season and a couple of really good ones, new ones, in uh, episode seven. And for me, it's been a bit of an unsung hero or highlight of the season. Um, it's, I just like the, like, when they went to Moss Esper in episode one, you sort of went, oh yeah, like, the set accomplishes what it needs to. It's just a little set in the desert in Tunisia. And you're like, yeah, cool, cool. But all these really wide establishing shots, it's sort of inside a crater, but it's kind of on a plateau. It's interesting. You know, it's this big sprawling hub in the desert. You can sort of see it. It's this big, um, you know, city of lights, in a funny way, in this just vast, empty expanse. So I like that. I like getting all those different looks of the vistas, uh, which is always good fun. Um, I felt like the show probably let us down a little bit in not realising much, if all, uh, at all anything, of that kind of mafia or mob epic that was sort of teased. You know, all the politics of Boba coming in and gaining control and dealing with these families and, you know, we got a bit of it, but it felt like surface level rather than maybe as rich as it could have been. You know, they've done the Western stuff really well when they've mined into that, but some of that mafia stuff I thought was just there, it was ripe, it was there to be taken and we sort of didn't really get a lot of it in this season when I thought we were going to get quite a lot more, um, which was interesting. And then the sense of scale... You know, I kind of referred to a little bit earlier. I'm not convinced they did a great job of showing us how much of a threat the Pikes are. You know, that first shootout at the Sanctuary sequence was sort of the first time all season when the limitations of scale of a TV show really reared their head. And I found myself sitting there watching the episode thinking, um, there's this great exchange. If you ever want to have a bit of a laugh, um, they're a bit of a commitment of time. But uh, Mark Bernard and Kevin Smith have their Fat Man on Batman podcast. And a f uh, sort of a, a feature of that has been their um, commentaries for particularly the first four, so Burton's and then Schumacher's. And they do these really funny commentaries 
that you just I just sort of usually if I ever watch them on the rare occasions I throw them on they just put them on in the background but they had this really funny bit from the Batman Returns one where they kept on calling it Gotham Seti because it was like this really hokey kind of jaunty soundstage town square set and it's meant to be this big sprawling metropolis but we only ever get this town square with four points you know you got the weird kind of um sort of like very interesting architecture in fairness but just the scale of the set was like we only ever go to this one part of the city in this town square that's it with a christmas tree and shrek's department store like that's it that's all we ever get to see and it was like in this last episode it felt like at times you know you've got this one street with the shank sanctuary at the end of it one way kind of road got about 30 blokes having a shootout on it which is this big blow off for the season ending uh, episode where we've been teased that these guys are coming to town and when they come to town they mean business and this is not good and it was sort of like <laughs> we keep talking about wanting to protect the city but apart from these big sprawling establishing shots which look amazing we get one thoroughfare we got like the spaceport and then we had a couple of street corners and you're kind of like oh yeah fair enough that's all right <laughs> and this is underscored by, you know, about half a dozen people being able to look out for their arrival. The arrival member, like, keep an eye out on the pikes. The pikes are coming to town. Just keep an eye out. And, like, five people are keeping an eye out on these three sections of the city. You know, uh, like a ragtag group of idiots from Freetown were able to repel them, send them back into the desert. Like, I never once got a really good read on how big the pike force was, and when it did arrive, it was just underwhelming. So I don't know if I'm alone there, but I just thought that the sense of scale didn't, in the end, sort of measure up to um, what they were built up to be. And then lastly, uh, the big sort of walking droid Dakar style you know, turret um, thing. I, I liked that it. it was felt like a bit um, Ed 209 from Robocop meets a bit of Sky Tech, uh, Skynet uh, Tech, sorry. So you had like Ed 209, a bit of Skynet, and then even actually in a funny way, like a little bit of the, the bug from Starship Troopers, just the, the legs and the... I don't know. It was, I'm not sure if, again, I'm, I'm seeing too much of something that's not there in it. But that was a bit of fun. It was sort of had a... Uh, it was a bit of a potpourri of all sorts of different inspirations um, to my eye. Uh, that was sort of fun to have a look at and fun to kind of watch it roaming around and doing its thing. So ultimately, the grade... Mm-hmm. Again, feels like we've said this a lot in the last couple of weeks. As an episode, it was fine. Yeah, but as a larger piece of the story being told, it was emblematic of the problems that the series has had. Rushed when it needed to breathe, a little bit too slow when it needed to show urgency, didn't ever quite know what speed it needed to be operating at at any one time, and in the end, the show's run out of steam after a promising start. It abandoned interesting story threads for those that, whilst engaging in and of themselves, belong on another show. You know, I just have a hard time believing that this Book of Boba Fett, season one, seven episodes, was an uncorrupted vision by its creators. Was This is what we wanted it to be all along, and this is what it's ended up being. I had this vision for the show to be this, and this is what it ended up being. I just have a hard time believing that's the case. It feels like it's been meddled with, feels like they've been leaned on, and in the end, we get something that the highs were good, not really relevant to what they were showing us at times, but good. And then it all ends up kind of collapsing in on itself because they wasted too much time telling the wrong story and then rushed the conclusion. So in the end, look, I gave the episode uh, a B minus, and sadly it, it kind of really influenced you know my read on the season that <sighs> just peed it out. And you thought, you've got the tools there to make this a really, really great show. And I just don't think you've used all of them. If you're, you're, you're playing with your toys and you've got, you've got every toy on the shelf and what you've come up with is this, it's kind of like, it's just disappointing, you know. It's just disappointing that that's ultimately what we got out of it. But I think the grade for the show would probably be... Probably a C+, which isn't, which isn't great. But I think that just speaks to the overriding emotion that you didn't end up making the show you started off making. The best stuff in it belongs to another show. 
and the final conclusion was underwhelming and unsatisfying. So, in the end, the book of Boba Fett is what it is. Um, it'll be an interesting thing to observe as years go on how it affects uh, the other properties, whether it be Mando, whether it be you know, the Ahsoka stuff, what, what characters carry over these experiences, uh, their presences, obviously, into those other shows. Um, you know, whether a Cad Bane returns and the like, you know, what Bobber ends up doing, you know, as these seasons progress, how Mando or where Mando ends up going and how he ends up involved in the broader narrative, you know, what we get out of Luke and that side of the story in future installments of all these different shows. Yeah, so th- there's, there's interesting stuff to come however they want to realise it, but I just hope that when they pull it all together, they do it with a bit more of a coherent, disciplined vision than what we saw with the book of Boba Fett. Um, so it's been really good fun to talk about this week after week. I hope that people who have been listening have enjoyed it. Um, it's been interesting just on my part to kind of be able to, like I said, just rationalise it all in my head and, and, and put my thoughts down and get those thoughts out, which has been great. Um, at this stage, I'd love to do one for Obi-Wan, which has just been given a May 25th release date, which makes perfect sense. May 25th will be the 45th, is my maths right? The 45th anniversary of A New Hope opening in theatres. So May 25th is a, you know, the first day the world saw Obi-Wan Kenobi in the desert. We'll go back and catch up with him there, which is great. A little bit of symbolism, which makes perfect sense. So we'll probably do a, a series cha- chatting Obi-Wan when that comes out. Uh, so thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure doing this. Um, as always, get in touch with me with your thoughts. What did you think about the episode? What did you think about the season? What did you make of any of the talking points I brought up? Um, I look forward to discussing them with you and I look forward to talking about more Star Wars and entertainment as the weeks and months go on. Goodbye.